0: bottle of wine, nostalgic love songs, and a late-night phone call with an axe. It's a relatable scene for many, and one that Scott Dell found himself in on a wintry night in Killaloo, Ontario, back in 1995. On the phone was the love of his life, his ex-wife Cheryl. The wine went down easy, perhaps too easy, and Scott scribbled down hopeful notes. As the conversation went on for hours... And for Scott, the air in his log farmhouse crackled with the hope of reconciliation. A reconciliation that would never happen. Join me now as we take a look into a real life locked room mystery. A case so bizarre and twisted, it took police two years to figure out that a murder even occurred. You'll hear about love gone wrong and how a troubled marriage devolved into deadly obsession manipulation, and even voodooism. Have you ever heard the phrase, a sliding doors moment? It's a lot like the butterfly effect, where small, seemingly inconsequential occurrences have massive existential impacts down the line. Rooted in quantum mechanics theory, Sliding Doors was popularized by the late 90s Gwyneth Paltrow movie. In the movie, her character is sent down two very different paths based on whether or not she catches a train on time or not. It becomes a pivotal moment that spills the trajectory of the character's future. A concept many of us have considered before the what ifs in our lives. What if I didn't decide to take a shortcut to work? What if I avoided that fender bender? What would life look like if I decided to take a year off school and traveled the world? How many diverging timelines exist based on whether or not I said yes to one thing and no to another? In almost every single case we cover, there's a sliding doors moment, and it usually comes down to crossing paths with the exact wrong person. Scott Dell's sliding doors moment happened way back in 1970, At a party he should have never been at in the first place. He'd just turned 18 and fled to his family's cottage in Ontario, Canada, to escape being drafted by the US into the Vietnam War. And it was there, at that very party, where Scott first met 16 year old Sherelle Scott. She had a cigarette that needed lighting, and Scott just happened to have the lighter. The two teens, brought together by a combination of a major historical event and a seemingly insignificant request for a light. But it was this very moment that set the trajectory of Scott's future and put into motion the terrible events to come. Because it wasn't just the lighter that sparked that night. Sparks also flew between Scott and Sherelle. Sparks that would grow, catch fire, and become all-consuming, leaving only ash and devastation in its wake. Young love is often fast and intense, as was the case between Sherelle and Scott, who couldn't be any more unlike. Scott was quiet and calm, while Sherelle was loud and outlandish. Scott described his childhood as secure and loving, whereas Sherelle's upbringing had been turbulent. But as they say, opposites often attract and after only a year of meeting, Scott and Sherelle married. In the beginning, the marriage was a bit rocky, not too surprising considering their ages, with Sherelle only 17 at the time. But it was because of her age that a lot of Sherelle's immature and attention-seeking behavior could be brushed off. Fortunately for her, Scott was always willing to weather storms, and there were plenty of them, some worse than others like the time she ran off to Toronto after only five years of marriage and began working as an exotic dancer for several months. There was also a suicide attempt when Sherelle didn't get her way, but it appeared Sherelle was bewitching and Scott always forgave her, even when she became pregnant with another man's baby. The real gutter was the fact that after two years into their marriage, Scott had agreed to her having an abortion with their own child, but now, here she was determined to have one that wasn't his. Again, Scott accepted Sherelle, the love of his life, and when the baby was born, he raised her as his own. Friends and family described Scott as loving and patient with his wife, and that Sherelle's happiness was all that mattered to him. Scott even confided to a friend that he felt He was put on earth to care for Sherelle, and to the surprise of everyone their marriage though turbulent persevered for another two decades in 1989 the dells purchased a farm called stony hill in killaloo ontario where they planned to open a group home for children with disabilities they'd been granted approval to become foster parents back in 1978 and had adopted a baby girl in 1987. Not long after buying the farm, Scott and Sherelle had a child of their own, this time a son, Scott's only biological child with his wife, and he was a natural. In fact, Scott became such a family man that after 12 years on the job at General Motors, he quit it to spend more quality time with his children and running the group home full-time. After arriving in Killaloo, Sherelle was the talk of the town, her provocative style didn't exactly fit in with the earthy vibe of Killaloo, a small town in the Ottawa Valley with a tiny population of under 1,000 people. In the 1960s, Killaloo had become sort of a mecca for the hippie counterculture movement, with its pristine landscapes, lakes and streams, and lush forestry. A place where nonconformists could escape urban and suburban mainstream to live off the land. The kind of place a draft dodger like Scott could easily fit in. But Sherelle, not so much. Instead of wearing jeans and Birkenstocks like pretty much everyone else in Killaloo, Sherelle was known to wear fishnet stockings, heels, and short skirts with bright red lipstick just to go out to the grocery store. But it wasn't just her wardrobe that drew attention. It was also the way she carried herself. She laughed too hard and talked loudly while making theatrical gestures. There was no question, wherever Sherelle went, people noticed her. In fact, she made sure of it. It was in Killaloo, Sherelle decided to finally work on some of her issues, claiming she'd recovered memories of sexual abuse by her parental grandfather. While the allegations are somewhat murky and unproven, no one could argue that Sherelle had had a turbulent childhood. At the age of 12, a bout of spinal meningitis had landed her in the hospital for 10 months, and according to her father, Sherelle was never the same after that she'd become moody and difficult always trying to find ways to seek attention and her father felt she'd come into the hospital with a split personality one minute she'd be temperamental and impulsive the next wonderfully charming in 1992 Sherelle's recovered memories of abuse motivated her to take a step in what seemed like the right direction when she joined group therapy for incest survivors But what started out as a way to work throughout trauma and self-exploration turned into a very different kind of self-discovery for Sherelle. It led to another woman named Gay Doherty, who'd also have her own sliding doors moment with Sherelle. The path that had led Gay to the therapy group was unique. She'd been born in New York, but at 18 years old, Moved to an area not far from Killaloo called Pembroke. It was there Gay experienced a higher calling and chose to serve the Catholic Church until another sort of calling led her in a different direction. The urge to break free from the confines of her convent in search of new experiences. At 43 years old, Gay had been out in the secular world for seven years and was excited for new adventures. However, She was also working through some of her own childhood traumas. When she met Sherelle in February 1992, the attraction was instant. She'd later testify that she thought Sherelle, who was six years younger than her, looked like a Barbie doll. Now, either Gay was in desperate need of getting her eyes checked, had never seen a Barbie doll before in her life, or Sherelle had put a spell on her too. Because what is for certain is that Sherelle looked nothing like a Barbie. If anything, she looks a lot like Shelly NoTech, who we covered in our episode, America's Most Evil Mother. But don't take my word for it. Google them and check it out for yourself. At first, the two women seemed to bond over their childhood traumas. But it didn't take long for their friendship to grow into something more. The affair just like most of Sherelle's relationships, grew intense quickly and after only a few months, the two women ran off together to Toronto in the Dell's family van, leaving Scott and her children behind. The trip only lasted about a week and when Sherelle returned, she was honest with Scott about her new lover and asked if Gay could move into their home. But Scott had finally had enough and put his foot down and refused a major turning point in their 20-year marriage. Scott, who'd put up with so much, finally said no. Faced with an ultimatum, Sherelle chose her new lover over her husband and children. But it would only take Gay three months to regret her decision. Sherelle was insipid, moody, jealous, and petty, and seemed to suck the very air right out of every room. But when Gay talked about ending their relationship, Sherelle would attempt suicide, or at least make it look like she tried, by taking a bunch of pills. At the same time Sherelle was in jeopardy of losing her relationship with Gay, she was furious and bitter with Scott for living in the farmhouse and having custody of all the children. Sherelle felt she should have both, and it was the kind of resentment and hatred that bubbled over and seeped into every conversation. A hate that could take possession of a person, and it was something Gay had witnessed firsthand. As it turned out, Sherelle had been dabbling in the dark arts, and at some point had made a wax voodoo doll of Scott. And it was just like you're probably imagining pins stuck through a wax figure ropes and ribbons tied around it. Gay even recalled Sherelle reciting words over the doll before burying it. Quite a sight for an ex-nun, but Sherelle didn't stop at just voodoo. She found other ways to hurt him that were more immediate. By making public accusations, Scott had sexually and physically abused their children. She also claimed he beat her, but they were all lies. And to Sherelle, It didn't matter whether those lies would traumatize her own children, because for Sherelle, it was all about the money. She lived off the income she got from fostering children and the tax benefits from her biological children. Eventually, Sherelle got what she wanted, and Scott was ordered to stay away from his kids and forced to move out of the farmhouse while the allegations were investigated. A situation that left Sherelle in charge of the children. Sadly, Gay watched as Sherelle frequently neglected or ignored her kids, sometimes not even buying them enough food to get by. She also noticed that the children's feelings and needs always came secondary to what Sherelle wanted. It all started to make Gay question Sherelle's claims about Scott being abusive, and eventually, she didn't believe any of it. In 1993, Sherelle officially filed for divorce, petitioning for full custody, ownership of the farmhouse, and alimony payments of close to $5,000 per month. But Scott wasn't having any of it, and he countered. He also wanted full custody, the farmhouse, and alimony from Shirell. Scott also requested that Shirell undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Thankfully, The judge overseeing the divorce, sided with Scott, and the psychiatric report conducted on Sherelle turned out to be anything but flattering. Apparently, Sherelle was practically a walking checklist for narcissistic personality disorder. Superficially charming, someone who could quickly draw people in, doesn't connect emotionally with people, expects others to put her needs before their own. Sherelle also perpetually viewed herself as a victim and constantly fixated on what she deemed as personal slights. The psychiatrist also noted that Sherelle seethed with bitterness and resentment while also being highly manipulative, prone to grandiosity, and was emotionally stunted. This was something that would become more obvious and even darker later on. Eventually, Scott was granted sole custody of the kids and the farm. Gay Doherty also finally managed to get out of her relationship with Sherelle a short while later in 1994. And surprisingly, Gay and Scott became good friends, bonding over their troubles with Sherelle. That's when Gay first began to truly see what a great father Scott actually was, taking the kids skating and baking for him heartwarming and heartbreaking all at the same time. When Scott Dell was diagnosed with throat cancer that same year, he began recording himself reading stories to his children so they would always remember his voice. None of this matched the monster Shirelle had painted him out to be. In time, Gay moved on from Shirelle completely and moved back to the States, settling in Texas. Scott Dell, on the other hand, Still pined for his wife, he wanted to be with her again and finally have his family back together. To prove just how much he loved her, Scott transferred the deed to the farm to join ownership. But Scott would be disappointed once again because Sherelle, once again, was seeing someone else. Apparently, Sherelle didn't take well to the single life. And so, shortly after Gay ran for the hills, she went looking for someone to fill her place. This time, she went looking in the single ads of the newspapers, responding to an ad posted by 37-year-old Nancy Fillmore from the city of Ottawa. To friends, Nancy would describe her new relationship as hypnotic, and like Gay, also had fallen for Sherelle's negative portrayal of Scott as an abuser to both her and the kids. And also, like gay, Nancy felt sorry for Sherelle and wanted to protect her. Not long after meeting, Nancy and Sherelle were living together in Killaloo. In 1995, after undergoing surgery and radiation therapy, Scott received the good news he was officially cancer free. While he still may have bore the battle scars of cancer, he was healthy and could look forward to many more years with his children. The possibility that he'd die and leave his children fatherless was Scott's biggest drive in getting better, and there he was, on the flip side of a horrific disease. Scott finally had a new lease on life, and he wasn't about to waste it. He wanted to take cooking classes, and for the first time since meeting Sherelle, was ready to start dating again, starting with a woman named Susan Quast. But when Sherelle found out the good news about Scott's cancer going into remission, she was infuriated. She'd been counting on him dying, because once he did, she'd finally get the farm and sole custody of the children. More importantly, the income the children had to offer. In fact, Sherelle had been anticipating Scott's death so much, as well as the inevitable windfall it would bring her, she even went looking to buy a new house it didn't matter she didn't have enough for a down payment because nancy fillmore would lend her the money friends of nancy were concerned she was lending such a large sum of money to a woman she'd practically just met but to nancy it didn't matter because by that point she was under Sherelle's spell she'd tell friends That poor Cheryl had suffered so much, abused by her husband, all the while caring for children with disabilities and being a devoted mother. How could Nancy not fall in love with such a good-hearted person? What kind of person would she be if she didn't help her out? But now, things weren't quite working out, the way Cheryl had envisioned. Scott was alive and cancer-free something that turned out to be a giant wrench in her cold, calculated plans. Her plans to sell the farmhouse and use the proceeds to pay for her new house were now impossible. Or were they? Although Sherelle knew Scott was healthy again, she still told people he was dying of cancer. She needed others to think she was still coming into some money, especially the mortgage broker handling the sale of her new home. But Scott just continued getting better and better. In the coming months, Sherelle spoke openly about how much she wanted Scott dead, even telling friends she wanted to hire a hitman. But no one seemed to take Sherelle's threats very seriously. Everyone around Sherelle knew her to be dramatic with erratic moods. Nancy, however, often bore the brunt of Sherelle's rage, with Sherelle lashing out at her. During one of her many fits, soon friends of Nancy's began noticing scratches and bruises on her arms, and it didn't take long for Nancy's sense of self to begin to deteriorate, just like Scott's had. Sherelle also began losing her appeal when Nancy began noticing Sherelle regularly dosing her kids with gravel or cold medicine to get them to sleep at night. At least, that's what she told Nancy— In reality, Sherelle just didn't want to deal with them. As a result, some of the kids would wet their beds. Others would have difficulty waking up. But the kids weren't the only ones getting dosed with something. One day, their cat died suddenly, and Nancy was devastated. Not Sherelle. Instead, she seemed more interested in the cause of death. As it turned out, the cat had mysteriously ingested antifreeze. Sherelle's reaction bothered Nancy so much, she actually considered leaving her. Around the same time things were going south with Sherelle and Nancy, things were also starting to fray between Scott and Susan, because Scott just couldn't seem to stop talking about Sherelle. For some incomprehensible reason, Scott still seemed absolutely fixated on her, despite the absolute hell she put him through, including the false accusations he'd been a child abuser. Eventually, Susan realized Scott wasn't over Sherelle and decided to move on, breaking it off just before Christmas 1995. Scott knew Susan was right. He was still in love with Sherelle. He just couldn't help it. So one night, just three days after Christmas, Scott sat on the phone with Sherelle, talking about the future listening to their old favorite songs together, reminiscing about the good times and drinking a bottle of wine she'd given him. The following day, December 29th, Gay Doherty arrived at Scott's farmhouse. When no one answered, she stepped inside. Just the day before, she returned back to Killaloo and visited Sherelle, Nancy, and Scott. She'd gone over to Scott's that day after Sherelle asked her to check in on him. Apparently, He was supposed to be picking up the kids from Sherelle's, but never showed up. When Gay stepped inside the farmhouse, it was cold and dark, like no one was home. But as she started looking around, she found an empty wine bottle and a desk cluttered with handwritten notes. No sign of Scott, though. As she continued looking around, she eventually found Scott, lying half-dressed, in one of his children's bedrooms. He was dead. When police arrived and surveyed the scene, they discovered half a glass of wine that had been poured and noticed it was a strange color. The notes Scott had written were disjointed in parts, but also pointed to suicide if read a certain way. The first few lines read Dear Mr. Fantasy, Carmelita, Linda Ronstadt, Debbie Quinn Fun, Life Would Go On Forever, Death, Suicide. The truth is simple but seldom ever seen. When police spoke to Sherelle, she told them Scott seemed extremely depressed during their last conversation. She said Scott's cancer had returned and his weight had whittled down to 130 pounds. Not to mention, his new girlfriend had just broken up with him. Sherelle claimed Scott was just in a bad state and she really wasn't surprised he chose to end his life. Test results would later reveal high amounts of antifreeze in the wine Scott had been drinking. For police, it seemed pretty cut and dry at this point. Scott Dell was dying, he'd just been dumped, he was alone at Christmas. And although antifreeze wasn't exactly a common way to go about it, in terms of suicide, they concluded this was a devastated man who decided to end his life. Sherelle also added that during her late-night phone call with Scott, He'd confessed that all the child abuse allegations she'd made against him were actually true. According to Sherelle, it was obvious now that Scott had just decided it was time to finally clear his conscience before ending this life. Scott's autopsy would later confirm that antifreeze was indeed what had killed him, with the report deeming the cause of death as undetermined since it couldn't conclude with any certainty that Scott took the antifreeze willingly. It was also decided that the suicide note was too cryptic to be conclusive. It didn't exactly contain Scott's explicit intent to kill himself. That said, the poison wine was in Scott's house and he lived alone, aside from his children. As well, the antifreeze content was so high in the wine that Shirley Sky would have noticed the taste. After all, who could accidentally drink an entire bottle of antifreeze wine? In the end, it was generally accepted by police that Scott Dell had committed suicide and the case faded away. Shirelle finally got what she believed was rightly hers, the farmhouse and full custody of the children. She even went further and made several false insurance claims on stolen items from the farm that never even existed. Sherelle was sure to make Scott's tragic suicide as lucrative as possible for herself. But two years later, in March 1997, the story took an incredibly bizarre turn when Nancy Fillmore walked into the police station and dropped a bombshell. By this point, Nancy had become so terrified of Sherelle, she'd become a bit paranoid and didn't even trust most of the police force, believing they may have been somehow manipulated by Sherelle. So that day, when Nancy walked into the station, she demanded to speak to the newest officer on staff, Sergeant Ken Leppard, and he was baffled by what she told him, that she was there to report a lie. She wanted Sergeant Leppard to know that a certain missing child wasn't missing at all. An infant of mixed Jamaican and Caucasian heritage named Bajula Stardell. In the years following Scott's death, Sherelle claimed to have given birth to a baby that was snatched from her days later. The father, a mysterious Jamaican man no one had ever met before. Both Nancy and Sherelle had even filed a missing child report. Nancy told Sergeant Leopard. That Sherelle had made her lie about the kidnapping, and that she was to pretend she'd acted as a midwife to a home birth, covering up that there was no record of Sherelle ever giving birth in a hospital. Sherelle even convinced her other children they had a missing sibling. Needless to say, Sergeant Leppert was shocked. Why had Sherelle created an elaborate hoax about having a missing baby? It's unclear exactly. But according to Nancy, Sherelle had become suddenly fixated on having another baby, specifically one of mixed race, going so far as hunting down maternity warts in search of a baby to kidnap that could fit the description. At one point, Sherelle even took out a personal ad, hoping to find a one-night stand with a black man that would result in a pregnancy. But the story about the fake baby wouldn't be the most outlandish thing to come out of Nancy Fillmore's mouth. She was just getting started. Over the course of several interviews, Nancy told Sergeant Ken Leopard everything, and I mean everything. Most importantly, that Scott Dell hadn't actually committed suicide. He'd actually been murdered by Sherelle. Nancy had watched with her own eyes as Sherelle laced a bottle of wine with antifreeze she later delivered to Scott and then that night stayed on the phone with him while he drank it. Not to reminisce or flirt with the idea of rekindling their relationship, but instead to coax him into having yet another glass of wine. Sherelle needed to make sure he drank as much as possible and listened as he started to fade away. She even took out her voodoo doll of Scott and witchcraft books, whispering little spells throughout the call. But Sergeant Leopard couldn't just take Nancy's word for it. After all, she could just be a scorned lover out for revenge and had in fact, just left her relationship with Sherelle weeks prior. At the time, Sherelle and Nancy were fighting in small claims court over the money Nancy had lent her as well as some furniture Sherelle refused to give back to her. So it was possible Nancy could just be making a false report out of spite. Yet as the investigation progressed, Sherelle began looking increasingly guilty. First, Scott's tissue from the autopsy were tested again, which revealed he was completely cancer-free, a fact further confirmed by Scott's doctor. Why would Sherelle have lied about that? That meant, If Scott was cancer-free, there was no real motive behind his supposed suicide. It was also discovered that the throat cancer had ravaged Scott Dell's taste buds and saliva glands, making it impossible for him to taste the antifreeze-laced wine. This revelation completely upended the original idea that no one could have accidentally drank the poison without realizing it. Scott simply wouldn't have noticed the different taste at all. Not to mention that drinking antifreeze was such an unusual mode of suicide because antifreeze causes a slow and excruciating pain as it crystallizes and shuts down the kidneys and other organs. Nancy also revealed to Sergeant Leopard that as Sherelle was planning to kill Scott, she called poison control making up a story about accidental ingestion of antifreeze to find out exactly how much it would take to kill a person who weighed 130 pounds, Scott's exact weight at the time. Fortunately, the call was logged and recorded. With all these combined revelations, police were able to reopen and investigate Scott's death with a new perspective, and Sherelle was enraged. She knew Nancy had been behind it, and soon Nancy was getting death threats. First, when someone lit a fire in her backyard. Then Sherelle kept calling police, accusing Nancy of all sorts of crimes, from credit card fraud to shoplifting. Sherelle had also started fires on her own property, blaming Nancy. In her romantic life, Sherelle had moved on to a much younger dating pool. Her current boyfriend was only 19, Sherelle was 44. Her reputation around town worsened when it became common knowledge that Sherelle was inviting teenagers she met working at the youth center over to her home and supplying them with weed and booze. Nancy became an emotional wreck. She knew her life was in danger, but wanted to stay the course in her small claims case against Sherelle. Even when Sergeant Leopard encouraged her to leave town, Nancy stayed. Then, one night in August, 1997, a fire broke out in Nancy's apartment. Tragically, Nancy Fillmore died from smoke inhalation. Immediately, Sergeant Leopard suspected Sherelle of being behind the fire, but found out she wasn't even in Killaloo the night of the fire. For the second time in her life, Sherelle had the perfect alibi, but it seemed awfully convenient that the primary witness against her in Scott's murder case was now deceased as well. Upon investigation, the cause of the fire didn't appear suspicious. Instead, it had been caused by lit candles that had fallen over, and the fire was ruled accidental. But then Sergeant Leopard received a call from someone working at the youth center where Cheryl had worked. Though Sherelle was no longer employed at the youth center, a teenage boy named Brent Crawford was bragging to anyone who'd listen that he'd started the fire at Nancy Fillmore's house, claiming he'd committed the perfect murder. He broke in, saw that Nancy was passed out, and just knocked the lit candles over. But rumors weren't enough to arrest Brent Crawford, so investigators set up a Mr. Big Sting operation. A controversial police tactic used to obtain confessions, a tactic actually banned in the UK and the US. So one day when Brett was hitchhiking, an undercover cop stopped to offer him a ride, and the trap was set. The way Mr. Big operations usually work, and what they told Brett was that there was a lucrative job waiting for him. But first, Brett needed to provide them some insurance so he wouldn't rat out Mr. Big's criminal activity by admitting to a crime he'd committed in the past. So, Brett told the undercover officer that he'd killed the woman and gotten away with it. Bingo! Brent was then swiftly arrested and eventually provided a full confession to police, admitting that Sherelle had asked him to kill Nancy in exchange for a few hundred dollars and a motorbike. During his confession, Brett also revealed that Sherelle had openly admitted to killing her husband with antifreeze that she did it for the farmhouse, full custody of the kids, and the insurance money. On December 20th, 1997, two years after Scott's death, Sherelle Dell was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. She was also charged with the murder of Nancy Fillmore, but Sherelle pled guilty to a far lesser charge of using a third party, a.k.a. Brent Crawford, for the purpose of intimidation. Sherelle Dell was convicted for murdering Scott in February 2001 and given a life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. Sherelle's first attempt at parole was denied and she remains in prison. When Scott Dell met Sherelle, his life was incredibly altered. Whatever trajectory his life had been on before that party way back in the 1970s had swerved and changed course dramatically. Because Scott Dell loved Sherelle from the moment he set eyes on her, he accepted her despite her flaws and the cruelty she inflicted on him. Scott Dell was loyal even when it no longer served his best interests, even when it turned out to be dangerous. Because Scott Dell had a big heart, perhaps a fool's heart. But there can be no question, Scott's heart was filled with love, whereas Shirelle's seemed incapable of feeling the full spectrum of human emotions, which is his own dark prison. To get what she wanted, Shirelle callously killed a man who spent over two decades striving to love her and make her happy, to now where Shirelle is held at the mercy of an entirely different kind of sliding door, a locked jail cell. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, By checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening.